I am Solis Veritas, and this is the Defending American Exceptionalism podcast. It appears many Americans have forgotten what makes America exceptional. This podcast is here to remind them. The greatest country on earth has been so successful that it may now be suffering from that very success. The lack of any real suffering in recent decades has made it all too easy for people to criticize and malign the greatest country ever to have been established by man, while sitting comfortably in their centrally heated homes, watching big screen TVs, interacting with their fellow men primarily through social media, and experiencing life events via virtual reality video games. This podcast is meant to serve as a reminder and tutorial on the unique and special form of government our founders created, and to explain the real history, purpose, and structure of America. It hopes to offer a counter to the falsities gaining popularity in the past 20 years, probably even longer, that America is no better than any other country, no different and no more honorable. Indeed, the very qualities of our country and her people that make it great are under attack in a way that threatens the very foundation on which it balances. Keyboard warriors, echo chambers, and virtue signaling with no substance are all the means by which individuals hide from any thoughtful discourse with their neighbors and make nearly impossible any honest, intellectual discussion of the issues of the day. If you'd like to engage in those types of discussions, stay tuned. This episode is being recorded on October 17th, 2021. Episode 40, The Propaganda Campaign to Control Us. Noted psychologists Anthony Pratt-Canis and Elliot Aronson posited, Every day we are bombarded with one persuasive communication after another. These appeals persuade not through the give and take of argument and debate, but through manipulation of symbols and of our most basic human emotions. For better or worse, ours is an age of propaganda. What they may have gotten wrong in the implication of that statement is that ours is the only age of propaganda. Propaganda is nearly as old as civilization itself, and the Roman Empire certainly took the use of propaganda for political purposes to new heights. And our very own nation's founders arguably used some propaganda, in the form of the Federalist Papers, for example, which were written and disseminated by the likes of Alexander Hamilton, James Madison, and John Jay under pen names to argue for ratification of the United States Constitution. Propaganda can be for a good and worthy cause, but it can also confuse those exposed to it. And the less individuals pay attention to or question what they see, hear, or read, the more likely propaganda can be used to alter our own opinions without even realizing we have been so swayed. What differs about our age of propaganda from these earlier times is that we now live in a time in which we can be subjected to propaganda at nearly every moment from nearly everywhere, and where propaganda is not limited to a physical form, a written paper, a person's voice, and the like, the source of the information we receive is more easily hidden. From its historical roots in propagating religious faith to the more modern 20th century use of propaganda to push political leaders, parties, or agendas, the speed and consistent way we now receive information opens itself up to such misuse that it can be difficult even to know when you are experiencing propaganda. There are different types of propaganda, and not all uses of it are fueled by ill motives, but the term has taken on an almost entirely negative connotation as a result of what we now know about some less desirable and downright evil ways in which propaganda has been used. From the Bolsheviks' use of it to push the Russian Revolution, to Stalin's use of pro-Marxist propaganda to build support for the new Soviet Union, to the use of propaganda by nearly all nations during World Wars I and II to paint the enemy as dangerous, to build support for war campaigns, and to play on the emotions of citizens to support war efforts. The goal was always the same, 
to control the minds of those targeted by the propaganda to reach a pre-selected conclusion on matters of the day. In addition to triggering emotions to elicit a desired response, the other notable characteristic of some propaganda is an inability clearly to identify the source of the information being received. Where you know who created the materials, what is often referred to as white propaganda, it can be easier for individuals to see or hear the information and then make an independent judgment as to the validity of the information and the individual's own response to it. Where the source of the information is unknown, what is known as black propaganda, and no, these terms are not, nor do they arise from racism, or gray propaganda, where the sources are unclear, it can be more difficult to recognize how the propaganda may affect you. What has changed in today's age of propaganda is that it is no longer easy, even when you know a source, to know if that source should be trusted. It is here where distrust of government and rising distrust of the media have created a war of legitimacy, with different agencies or news outlets claiming that they, and not the other guys, are actually providing truth. In a 2017 article on ScienceTrends.com, Trevor Nace wrote an article entitled The Secret History of Political Propaganda. Nace identifies a number of different methods of propaganda that are worthy of discussion here. The first are bite-sized tags, slogans and catchphrases that are easy to understand and to remember. You can see this kind of propaganda often in commercial advertising and in political circles. Make America great again. Build back better. Black lives matter. Follow the science. They are easy to repeat and seemingly easy to understand. Fear-mongering and scapegoating. This is the creation of an irrational fear to push an agenda. We can see this type of propaganda often in the left's talk about climate change, the characterization by the left of Presidents Bush and Trump as fascists, or in the current identity politics that seeks to turn us against each other based on race or gender or profession, such as in the case of law enforcement, by convincing us to fear the others, those not like us. And then there's demonization. Demonization often goes hand-in-hand with fear-mongering, where your enemies are painted as evil and dangerous, such that you are emotionally conditioned not to support them or their ideas and, in fact, to be afraid of them. Paternalism. It is in this method of convincing society that they need to be protected and cared for that the current Democratic Party agenda attempts to push for more government programs, a type of propaganda used often during the COVID-19 pandemic, which also went along with some fear-mongering. And then there's the common folks propaganda. It is in this type of propaganda that the likes of FDR rose to power, convincing those needed to support him that he was one of them, a regular Joe. It is in this method of propaganda that populist movements find their success. And then there's bandwagoning. Trust the science. There is, there is consensus among experts and other broad sweeping conclusory claims, all seek to convince the listener or reader that everyone else is already on board with a certain belief or issue. It appeals to the human desire to belong, to be on the right side, the winning side. Jump on the bandwagon, for if you don't, you will be left behind. Flag-waving. Flag-waving appeals to individuals' identity with country and is seen most often in history in times of external conflict, war. It shares some things with demonization in that it appeals to our sense of the goodness of ourselves and our nation as compared to any with which we are in conflict. And then there's ad nauseum propaganda. This uses repetition to reinforce ideas such that we accept them often without even realizing it. The use of buzzwords and consistent messaging are the hallmark of this type of propaganda. When you hear certain leaders or commentators using the same phrase over and over to describe a certain issue or event, this is because of ad nauseum propaganda. The term has been used or the phrasing used over and over again until someone just instinctively uses it. 
And then there's propaganda called the big lie. We've heard this term more in recent years as each political side attempts to paint the other's messaging, propaganda, if you will, as the big lie. Consider the left's claims of President Trump's big lie related to the election fraud of 2020, and the right's claims of the big lie or lies related to COVID or the incident of January 6th at the U.S. Capitol. Each attempts to paint the other's political narrative as false in its entirety. And methods of propaganda are found throughout both sides in these examples, as they seek to use most of the other methods of propaganda to firmly establish in the minds of the citizenry a chosen narrative about certain events. No doubt propaganda is all around us, but who is responsible for it, and how do we spot it in order to step back to evaluate situations and issues for ourselves, independent of any experienced propaganda we may have? Government propaganda can be well-intentioned. It can be, as it was in both world wars, a way to rally the country in times of war and to recruit those needed to support it. Our grandparents and great-grandparents regularly encountered this kind of propaganda, often in the form of artwork or posters. Who hasn't seen Uncle Sam pointing from a poster, poster saying, I want you, as a method of military recruitment? Or the Daddy, Where Are You? posters showing children asking what role their fathers played in the Great War. And then there were posters and campaigns to encourage the purchase of Blue Eagle Company products. These were companies that complied with the National Industrial Recovery Act, an anti-competition bill enacted during the administration of Franklin Roosevelt. And the government had quite an extensive program to encourage the purchase of Liberty Bonds. The very name suggests that a failure to invest in this way in your nation is anti-liberty. This kind of government propaganda seeks to elicit the support of citizens for a particular policy, and our government uses such propaganda to address everything— from foreign policy actions that need nationwide support, to missions to support certain industries or to encourage or discourage certain behaviors. As early as 1911, the use of propaganda in the form of poster artwork sought to undermine a trust of capitalism, including a cartoon showing the common worker supporting the rich fat cats atop the system. And during World War II, the Allies, particularly the U.S. and Britain, supported a number of artistic posters to forward the Careless Talk Costs Lives campaign, as a way to remind those involved in the military campaigns not to share any information, even with their closest family members, for to do so could risk someone's life. And of course, propaganda was not limited to the United States and our friends. Our enemies were masters of propaganda, selling their anti-democratic revolutions and regimes as the best of the common man, and painting us as the evildoers. Propaganda may have truly been mastered in World War I, and carried over to even greater effect in World War II. But in these conflicts, there was, at least, some belief that the goal was rallying the troops, both literally in terms of our service members and figuratively in getting the country behind the war effort. But it is not only in war, and indeed today less so in war, that our government engages in these campaigns of persuasion. Thinking a bit more recently, anyone alive or familiar with issues of the 1960s would be hard-pressed not to have seen or heard about, though it only actually aired once, Lyndon Johnson's campaign ad, the Daisy Girl ad, showing an innocent young girl, and then the explosion of a nuclear bomb. And then there's the government-backed Got Milk campaign, which may have been to encourage drinking a healthy beverage, or it may have had more to do with surplus milk and cheese the government was forced to purchase from American farmers, and that post-war surpluses found their way to school cafeterias, such that it was in the government's interest to instruct families that dairy products were good for children. And they may be. But the campaign to push milk consumption was less than transparent, with the fact that the Got Milk campaign was not openly funded, but somewhat secretly funded by the U.S. government. The Ad Council, purportedly an independent nonprofit organization, has for years worked closely with the U.S. government to develop its ad campaigns. 
labeled public service announcements, the ads produced and distributed are clearly intended to influence the audience, and often in ways the government instructs. Its role in propaganda is not surprising, given it was created in the early 1940s and was once called the War Advertising Council. Their ad campaigns have included everything from encouraging military enlistment, to preserving war supplies and purchasing war bonds, to pushing for acceptance of the polio vaccine, supporting joining the Peace Corps, campaigns in support of the rights of those of the LGBTQ community, and more. The Ad Council is, indeed, responsible for the Rosie the Riveter We Can Do It wartime poster campaign. Even if not working closely with the government, which it often does, this organization's mission is to engage in propaganda on social issues. It is true that you may support the position taken by the Ad Council, but it must be conceded that the ads do not consider counter-viewpoints on the issues addressed. These are not objective ads. And ad campaigns created by the Ad Council have been paid for by the U.S. Departments of Agriculture, Health and Human Services, Justice and Transportation, among others. The government's propaganda is not limited to domestic efforts. Indeed, until more recently, propaganda was a part of most international relationships and was used to garner support for U.S. positions abroad, among the people there, to influence foreign citizens into action in ways that serve United States interests. But this episode is focused on how we Americans are being influenced, perhaps unwittingly, by today's propaganda. So these international propaganda campaigns, of which there are many, are a topic for another episode. But the same kind of efforts taken by other nations targeting us. After all, the recent revelations of the use of social media and the internet by the likes of China and Russia are no, are no shock if it, to anyone reading news stories. At this point, can there be any doubt that we are constantly bombarded with messages someone else wants us to see and accept? In today's world, we see government propaganda, particularly from the left, almost working in concert with the media's own propaganda to indoctrinate our own people. And this partnership creates an insidious situation where individuals receive information from sources they believe to be unbiased, to not be engaging in propaganda. And this media propaganda is rampant. Interestingly, if you find yourself on the political left, you do not see media bias. If you, however, see yourself on the political right, you are regularly confronted with news stories from corporate media outlets that provide information you know to be false, or at least that fails to consider your own positions and views on a given topic, and the facts that do support that position. No longer does the media, in whatever form, simply report on events. It opines on them. It picks and chooses what to present, and its sources are often dubious at best. In recent years, the bias with which so much news is reported has become more severe and also more noticeable. No longer do many members of the media even hide their support for certain candidates, for certain policies, and for certain sides of social and political debate. From a propaganda perspective, that is good news. When a source's own bias is more knowable, the influence on us by that source is less, and it sparks independent thought and consideration of what is being heard, seen, and read. But for those on the left who do not even see the admitted bias of their own journalists, the problem is still one of propaganda, or an echo chamber, Since those who identify with a more left perspective are hearing what they already believe to be true, it is easier not to question it and to take those reports as confirmation of the correctness of their positions. The problem today, however, is that the media is, much like the Ad Council, now just another arm of one political viewpoint. I've discussed the media bias in earlier episodes, but there can be no doubt that at least beginning in the early 20th century, many of our government officials have turned to friends in the media to create messaging campaigns that support one particular agenda over another. It is not open debate or consideration of objective facts that is at issue. 
Perhaps it was a love of President Obama or a hatred for President Trump. But whatever the cause, no objective doubt can exist that the mainstream news media stands decidedly on the side of the left and works to push that side's agenda in government. The handling of the pandemic only highlighted the commitment to a narrative over developing facts that now rest with our mainstream media news outlets. Stories that ridiculed conservative positions about the virus, from alternative medical treatments to the low risk to children to the use of masks, are only now, a year and a half later, admitting those positions were scientifically and factually supportive, something that could not be accepted as even a chance when President Trump and his supporters were asking those questions. A more accurate portrayal of the decay, decay of traditional media may be that it, it no longer prides itself on rugged investigation and accurate reporting, and has become just another entertainment industry. In this regard, it is no shock it has moved ever leftward, as so much of entertainment tends to do. Rather than provide information on which the citizens can decide, the media is now the perfect propaganda organization of self-appointed intellectuals and experts whose primary goal appears merely to entertain. While the nation watched, if it chose to do so, cities burn and riots break out during the summer of 2020, the news media continued to report on peaceful marches and protests, even while some of their own film footage so showed the actual violence behind them. All the while, they cried the skies falling, in chicken little style, if any conservative or religious gathering occurred with more than 10 people, unmasked. With no reference to the COVID risks at the allegedly peaceful protests, these other gatherings of conservatives were super spreader events. And that was not true. Not any more true than the riots being similar spreading events, if they were spreading events at all. But the media adopted a narrative of a systemically racist America, and so it had to support those protests and riots. Just this time period in the United States history demonstrates that the shift from reporting to propaganda is now complete within our news industry. No wonder viewership for most news shows and channels is lower than ever. It is in part due to the growing mistrust of corporate media that a door was opened for anyone with an electronic device and an internet connection to begin sharing ideas and, quote, facts with anyone and everyone. And it's due to this changing perception of television, radio, and print news that big tech saw a platform, figuratively and technically, on which it could welcome more voices in a way to purport to support free and open debate, only to use its private status to control the actual messaging and itself to be manipulated by entities, including foreign governments, whose own propaganda campaigns slipped silently into the posts seen by users of the various social media platforms. Big tech and the companies that comprise it, Google, Twitter, Facebook, and the like, are commercial enterprises. In that way, they are entitled to their own agendas and can function much like other for-profit businesses, promoting themselves as they choose within the law. The problem enters in a time where we do not trust traditional news sources and instead find ourselves perusing the posts of innumerable online subscribers who may or may not know anything about what they're actually posting about and find that if we choose, we can confirm any preconceived notion, all while having no control truly and understanding as to what posts the algorithms of these companies actually are allowing us to see. In other words, we feel in control but are not. Social media is not a place where you see a randomly selected collection of user posts and are likely to be exposed to all sides of any issue or discussion. Quite the opposite. More and more information is proving that the method of propaganda used by social media is essentially to act as a funnel, to control the information users see without the users ever realizing what they are not being shown, or that they are only being shown one side of the story. In essence, the likes of Facebook, Twitter, and Google want to be viewed as the source for information, if you look only to Google to search the internet, however, or only to Facebook to get news or to Twitter, 
then simply by implementing algorithms that highlight certain positions while suppressing others, these platforms filter what you know and what you learn. Where the internet was once viewed as a way to open more information for more people, it now serves as a web, no pun intended, of information from unidentifiable sources that is accessed primarily through big tech, such that only if a user intentionally goes digging for contrary positions can any attempt at getting all the facts be successful. And the widespread use and reliance on big tech has opened the door to propaganda to be distributed by the government, by other nations' governments, by special interest groups, and by others who knowingly disseminate inaccurate, incomplete, or one-sided versions of events that are then additionally censored through the lens of whatever preferred information those in charge of big tech want users to see. And if everything you're permitted to see says the same thing, it's all too easy simply to accept that proposition without the normal intellectual inquiry that might occur if all sides were allowed to post information. To add to the influence these social media sites and search engines have on us, they control the flow of information while seeming to indicate that we have the control. Who hasn't followed pages or sources or blocked users whose posts you don't want to see, feeling like you're in charge of what shows up on your news feed? The problem is that this control is superficial, and it also encourages the very limitation of information that creates the perfect petri dish for less honest users to engage in propaganda campaigns. You see, while you think you're controlling the information flow, you're actually providing information that they can use against you. Have you ever been continuously peppered with advertisements or posts just because, based on your past activity, Facebook or Twitter thinks this is what you might like? Setting up the fallacy that you are, in fact, receiving all kinds of information, and that it's information based on your own preferences, when in fact, it's only the information they want to give you. And the engagement in this modern version of propaganda offers another thing that today's society seems always to be clamoring for, instant access at your fingertips. It is too much trouble for many to read an entire article when a tweet can give them the information they think they need. Why pick up a book that fully researched and cited sources and explains a topic when you can access a several-paragraph summary on your phone and skim it in a matter of seconds? You see, the propaganda here is giving you bite-sized, it's giving you demonization, it's giving you all these methods of propaganda in a way that you think you're just saving time and being efficient, when in fact it's preventing you from going to the real source and doing your own research. And the propaganda found on these sites is not limited to political propaganda, commercial activity that persuades you that you do need that new youth supplement or the softest bed sheets is just as prevalent and uses the very data you voluntarily provided through your use of social media and website searches to target you with other similar commercial products and services. It's simply too easy to send messages to those already deemed susceptible to them to sell more products. Whether that product is support for climate change or the purchase of the newest and greatest running shoe, it's the same kind of propaganda. What social media originally appeared to offer in terms of social connection is now merely a platform upon which we enter personal information about ourselves that can be used against us, sometimes with good intentions, but often with ill intentions. It may be true that we live in the information age, but if information is the primary commodity provided by the internet and convenient electronic devices, the key information to ask is who controls this information and who is providing this information. The answers to those questions can be somewhat frightening. We know that foreign nations regularly engage in propaganda campaigns targeting the United States and its citizens through social media. We also know that our own government often collaborates with social media and others in the big tech community to encourage the, quote, private censoring of information that the government itself, due to First Amendment protections, could not restrict. 
how we address this ongoing and embedded new world of propaganda is something that needs to be sorted out sooner rather than later. But the solution is not likely to be clear or easy now that we all already have accepted use of these platforms as near life's necessities. At a minimum, the next time you see something posted on a social media site or undertake a web search, do not accept what you see first, second, third, or so on. Consider that what you read may only be one side of the story, what those in charge want you to see. Unfortunately, this intellectual curiosity and willingness and desire to question what you read, see, or hear is being taught out of our younger generations, who are all too willing to accept whatever conclusion some popular, famous, or expert voice says on a particular issue. Educational propaganda is perhaps the largest threat to free thought. If our educational institutions taught students how to think, not what to think, it would be harder for propaganda campaigns to succeed. Where education and educational institutions were once the best place to open minds to new ideas, today's educational institutions are all too often, even in our elementary and secondary schools, places where students are taught that there is only one correct answer to social problems, while problems that actually have real answers like math apparently have a multitude of answers available. The real problem with educational indoctrination is that the students haven't even been asked to consider the other side in any real sense. Consider a, re a recent video posted by Campus Reform, an organization that reports on the state of things on American college and university campuses. On that video, students at the University of Florida were asked their views on diversity of faculty and students, and whether hiring and admissions should be focused on ensuring diversity, as in diversity quotas. When asked that question, the students generally agreed that diversity quotas would be appropriate and were, according to at least one student, quote, an absolute necessity, end quote. When these same students, however, were presented with the idea of diversity quotas for college and university sports teams, they changed their tunes. When asked to focus in on a single situation, sports teams, the football team, these students reversed course, stating that playing on such a team should be based on players' skill and talent. When the interviewer went further and pointed out the racial makeup of the University of Florida Gators' offensive line for the football team and what it would be if racial and ethnic diversity was the goal, the students were willing to accept that diversity for diversity's sake for sports, as well as for teachers and students, maybe didn't make sense. What this interview demonstrates is that these students are being fed a line, and they are buying it and reselling it because they've not been asked or even permitted to consider a different viewpoint. But once they are given that opportunity, they are not beyond reopening their minds. So there is hope. But that hope dwindles as educational propaganda digs itself deeper and deeper into the mindset and agenda of those in charge of educating our youngest students. Perhaps one of the most egregious efforts at uh, uh, examples of propaganda in education was an effort at pro-trans propaganda from the Loudoun County, Virginia School District. The district previously had enacted a rule that was sold as a pro-trans student civil rights move in the right direction of equity and fairness to all students a rule that allowed students to use the restroom for the gender with which they identified, not the bathroom that comported with the student's biological gender. That rule allowed one male student to sexually assault a female student in the school restroom, an assault the school not only covered up, but feigned ignorance over during a recent school board meeting where angered parents, including the victim's, victimized student's father, spoke up. The school board also didn't volunteer that once they transferred that student, he assaulted yet another girl in a girl's restroom. The pro-trans agenda was too important to be concerned for the actual truth about safety of students. And one can only imagine, given how the parents were treated, how students who raised concerns about whether this was a fair and reasonable policy might be addressed. For our students are being taught they cannot speak out to voice any opinion that could in any way be perceived as anti-LGBTQ+, at all. 
And that's just one of many, many subjects upon which, rather than presenting students with facts and a method of logic to reach conclusions, students are merely told the conclusion they must accept. No other one can be tolerated. The same is true, for example, of climate change. Climate change propaganda can be seen coming from all directions, from the government, from the media and entertainment industries, from social media, and from our schools. In none of these places does any real opportunity to to debate climate change exist. Even scientists who accept that climate change is man-created can be censored if their solution or approach to it does not comport with the preferred doctrine of those in charge. Disagree with the preferred message of so many of our information platforms and you'll be labeled a climate denier. Your voice will be silenced as expelling misinformation and unknowing users of information technologies will never hear your viewpoint, no matter how well-researched and reasoned. And the same can be said of how often you now see young children masking just out of habit. Children were told by their teachers that masks make them good people, that the failure to wear a mask puts your parents, grandparents, and teachers at risk, that you had to wear a mask to be a good person, and that children generally want to be good people, which used against them. Of course, we now have a whole lot of young children who don't know how to interact without masks and are behind socially and educationally because the adults in charge had their own propaganda campaign of fear to wage, and that campaign was far more important than the health and welfare of the children. And our children were given no real opportunity to escape from this propaganda and that continues to be told and continues to tell them they have a duty to save the adults around them. This may be the most horrid of propaganda campaigns that put an elite set of those in control in charge of sacrificing our children for their own agenda, and that agenda was control, not public safety. And where the Department of Justice is willing to label outraged parents as domestic terrorists in an attempt to quiet dissension from full acceptance of a liberal curriculum, and where liberal policies are being challenged and that appears to be impermissible, no doubt can exist that the flow of information is sought to be controlled. Unless we forget, when online classrooms first became widespread as COVID entered the country last year, many teachers were caught expressing their distress that parents might now actually know what their children are being taught. This is not the free flow of information. This is the control of it. And more and more than control is being handed down from a more centralized conglomeration of leftist leadership, Hollywood, big tech, and government in general. The more they converge and align with one another, the less information our children will receive in an honest and truthful manner, and the less control we will have over obtaining information to counter the indoctrination of them by these entities. This is propaganda. This is propaganda to ensure our children reach the right conclusions, their conclusions, those in control. If children are left to hear only one message, and that message is the only accepted rightful, fair, and reasonable one, we cannot expect them to question those messages. For with propaganda, convincing the victims of it that what the perpetrator desires is for their own good and is in their own independent uh, best interest and was their own independent conclusion is often the tactic most used and the one that most readily masks for the influenced that they have been influenced in the first place. As always, thank you for listening. We are constantly subjected to propaganda from nearly every aspect of modern life. And unlike propaganda campaigns of the past, these campaigns are undertaken through messaging that is found on the very platforms we now almost instinctively turn to for all of our information. 
rather than the information age ushering in wider access to more information? At present, the information age is an age of information control and of censorship that may be just as dangerous as the government censorship our founders knew was a threat to open debate, honest discourse, and that made changing your mind a respected action when confronted with information that contradicted your preconceived ideas. This is no longer the accepted view. You only have a right answer. There are no counterpoints. I will return to a quote of Alexis de Tocqueville that I may have used before, but it could not be more perfect for contemplation in this, the information age. He said, It is easier for the world to accept a simple lie than a complex truth. So next time you're ready to accept another's conclusion, make sure it is not just because that conclusion is easy to accept, and move on without considering the issue in more detail, with all of its complexities. Next week, I will discuss our current economic situation. It is time to return to a discussion of the economy. As thousands walk off the job, millions of jobs remain open. Inflation appears here to stay for some time and to worsen. The supply chain is in chaos, and the current administration's policies are set to worsen all of these conditions, all while resulting in rising prices and taxes for the common American. A return to the proper role of the government in times of economic downturns will help understand why the nation may be at a turning point as our Congress teeters on the edge of passing unprecedented budget legislation and our own economy is being hamstrung by vaccine mandates, restrictions on energy production, and just overall bad economic policy. Until next time, stay free, be brave, search for truth, defend our Constitution, and God bless America. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please consider leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And don't forget to share the podcast with others who may enjoy and need to hear it. If you wish to help this podcast continue, you can contribute to support it by going to anchor.fm backslash solace-veritas and clicking the support button. The Defending American Exceptionalism podcast is written and produced by Solace Veritas. Original music by Canticum Octar. Special thanks to Morales Susceptor. Copyright. 2021.